What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All of the Above Podcast Extra. My name is Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, and um, I'm a high school history teacher and ethnic studies teacher here in the Los Angeles area for those of you who may be new to this. But for those of you who are true to this, welcome back. Happy to have you back on this, um, at least in Los Angeles, um, finally sunny and Southern California type of day. And um, I'm here, of course, as always with Jeff, Mr. Super Duper Dope Principal Leader Man. And um, Jeff, man, our routine of like full episodes and a full episode kind of mirrors kind of like a classroom lesson plan where we have a, uh, you know, a, a, a do now, so to speak, where we talk about multiple headlines in the world of education just to warm us up. And then we follow that up with a seminar discussion with a super dope guest or two where we, um, you know, dive deep into whatever the, the primary topic of that episode happens to be. And then we follow that up with kind of like an exit ticket, class dismissed sort of thing where we shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. That full lesson plan, Jeff, those full episodes, it's been like, I think over a month now since we've had a full episode. Our most recent full episode featured the the wonderful minor collective, uh, Cassin uh, Cornelius Minor. And that was a minute ago. So it's just been a lot of passing periods. And of course, passing periods are just you and I, Jeff, um, you know, kind of just catching up in between those lesson plans, just like teachers do during a regular school day and this string of passing periods man i think this is exactly what what conservatives feared was happening in our school system which is to say teachers just like just us woke teachers just talking and not really doing any work jeff not really um not really doing (laughs) the 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 teaching that we're hired to do and jeff i hate to break it to you man but i think i think we are the ones who caused learning loss man we caused learning loss jeff we have not had a full episode full lesson plan full agenda in quite a while jeff we are to blame for all that learning loss what are we to do jeff well, see, your larger thesis here is correct. However, when you say we, I think what you actually mean is you, because uh-uh. you are the only lazy teacher on this here uh, podcast. I am a administrator type who gets to wag my finger at you and tell you <laughs> about how how you should be better at your job. Even though I might not be able to show you how to be better at your job, and I actually might not have been better at your job than you actually are, <laughs> but I am here to authoritatively let you know that you should be better, Manuel. So that's a slight correction. There. During my passing period, no less. When I've got copies to go pick up, I got to use the restroom, I got students coming in, my phone is ringing in the classroom, and my administrator's here asking me, why am I just not doing anything right now? When am I going to step it up? Wow, Jeff. Also, by the way, I need you to cover third period. Of course, of course. Got it, Jeff. Got it. All in the day <laughs> of a typical public high school teacher out here in these streets. Um, so, yeah, we appreciate y'all. We appreciate y'all still being here, obviously, and rolling with us as we explore these various topics and in, in news and headlines and all that in the world of education. And we hope everyone's doing reasonably well, um, as well as can be expected. And of course, Jeff, you know, our, our, our 49ers play tomorrow in the Super Bowl. So for those of you who are, who do tune in to all of the above, uh, because you, you love our sports analysis, which is all of, you know, 30 seconds and usually not, not very in-depth analysis, um, slightly biased analysis, I would say as well. Um, yo, cheer for our Niners tomorrow. Like that's just like, just 
just that's 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 your homework that's your your task for this weekend um i know my school district actually has a three-day weekend i think uh lincoln's birthday or something like that i don't know how many other educators listening to this have monday off but uh shout out to you you might be listening on a monday driving into work talking about what the hell other people have today off and i gotta i gotta go in um so hopefully you're at least able to drive with some some warmth in your heart over a 49ers victory but you know that may not be happening, so perhaps you are listening to uh, some Taylor Swift as you drive in, because or some Usher since he's performing in the halftime show, because um, you know that's what's risen to the top. So you know whatever the case is, hopefully you're doing great. Hopefully you are doing great, uh, Jeff. Man, how was your week? How how were things? Last week you said you had uh, some challenges, some challenges over the course of the week. Uh, so. You know, check in with us. What are the updates? Everything, you know, hopefully settled back down, car up and running again, things things going all right? Cars up and running again. Um, much better week this week. <laughs> no excruciating pain or trips to the emergency room. Catalytic converter is still in place. Uh, knock, knock on wood here. Uh, <laughs> so it's a much better week, Manuel. Just, uh, you know, busy with work stuff. We had our monthly leadership conference and uh, there's drama going down in Los Angeles Unified right now, Manuel. Oh, um, so yeah, yeah. So, uh, this, <laughs> I'm going to share this policy, uh, that is currently set to be policy and also has stirred up, uh, quite yeah. the, the uproar. Let's hear it, man. We want so, all the juicy details. Okay. What's the T, Jeff? What's the T? Okay. So the district, uh, essentially released during the budget development trainings a policy that's, that essentially said the district has way more uh, administrators at school sites than it's like technically supposed to have. And, um, and that they were going to essentially hold schools next year to only having the normed number of administrators that they should have. And then they could potentially buy one more administrator. Um, but this would be taking, um, like, for example, you know, we have elementary schools with like 700 kids, let's say, that currently might have a principal and two assistant principals. And that school next year would have just a principal, no APs, oh. right? Right. So, you know, we have a middle school in a very, like the highest need part of town, right? With the most complex uh, issues to address in terms of meeting the needs of the students in the community that currently has a principal and four assistant principals that next year would have a principal. And if they have the resources, one assistant principal, right? So they're basically talking about cutting the administrator ranks across the, the assistant principal ranks across the system by like half ish, right? Ballpark figure there. So as you can imagine, uh, a lot of people, uh, nervous about their jobs, a lot of people being, uh, you know, feeling disregarded, dismissed, upset. And, um, you know, <laughs> a lot of, uh, people organizing, you know, the union pushing back other kinds of things. So I think, you uni pretty universally, the hope is like we come to a better 
actual place before implementation of such a policy. Um, it also has no equity lens. So this is just like across the board. So a nice, comfortable middle class school on the West Side or whatever would have the same normed number of APs as, say, a school in Watts, hmm. um, which, as we know, in education, policies like this that are done without an equity lens are not only just like the wrong thing to do, but actually exacerbate the equity gaps that we have in the system. And so, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really <laughs> rough wow. piece of uh, policy news to get. And, um, and so that is, that's all, all the gossip, all the cheese may is, uh, Dang. is brewing right now in the district around, around that. So we'll see what actually comes of it. But that was, that was the big news this week. Damn, man. That's tough. That's tough. I don't know how many assistant principals we have listening in, especially ones from from LAUSD. But as someone as a teacher in a high school, um, seeing what our assistant principals do and certainly we could use more and seeing how just how how much they have to run around all day um, putting out, you know, various fires and being you know available for various other things and whatever. Um, I couldn't imagine losing any of them for sure and definitely if you are tuning in if you are an assistant principal you know i know we you know we classroom teachers like to um joke about administrators quite a bit particularly administrators who um perhaps are i don't know a little distant from the realities of the classroom and what it takes to be an effective teacher and all that nowadays but i do know uh in my experience most assistant principals are actually really dope people doing the best that they can. And I can't imagine what it would be like to uh, march on throughout the school year, not knowing if you were going to be, if your position was going to be picked up for next school year. Uh, Jeff, am I right in assuming that the reduction in assistant principals, that the funding, the funds for that would be used to hire more uh, uh, therapists, counselors, teachers, resources to help kids out. I assume, Jeff, it's a direct thing. Like, uh, you know, we reduce one assistant principal, we can use those funds to expand our, our wellness services for young people. Or at least, are they at least claiming that they'll be doing that? Or is it just straight up like, yo, we cutting, <laughs> we cutting, because we got to try to, you know, balance these numbers? Well, that's a good question. The honest answer is I have not seen any communication to that effect. Gotcha. So, um, so I'm not certain what I believe and, and what I have heard to be the implication of this is that the district is facing like many districts with the sunsetting of, you know, the pandemic relief funds and, right. and just general, uh, the budget outlook in the state of California and whatever is, is projecting budget deficits and looking for places to cut. And that this is one of those places that they are starting at least to make cuts. Also, there is, and, and this is where, like, from my perspective, Manuel, as someone who's an administrator in New York City, I didn't realize, like, how unusual my experience was in many ways, um, until I, until I started working, uh, you know, in other districts. Um, so as a principal, you know, you in New York, when I was there at least, you were basically given your budget for your school, which was based on, you know, per pupil funding and other, other kinds of things, um, you know, title one percentage and all that kind of stuff. And then you had the rules associated with the funding source. So like your title one dollars could only be spent on title one eligible 
things, services and goods, right? Your, um, you know, Title III funds could only be spent on those sorts of things. So there were restrictions that are there that are mandated by legislation. But other than that, I could pretty much do what I wanted to do with the budget, right? Or I should say the school could do what it wanted to do with the budget. The, um, you know, of course, you had the like contractual limits around class size and you had, you know, uh, IEP mandates and all, all the other things that like tell you what you have to do. But you could be you had a lot more autonomy to to then, you know, say, you know what, in order to run an effective school, I need additional counselors or I need additional, you know, assistant principals or whatever. There wasn't this just like completely made up and frankly, like utterly ridiculous set of norm tables that just say like, well, your school has 600 kids, so it gets one principal and no APs. And your school has a thousand kids, so you get a principal and one AP, right? Um, and so, and I think honestly, the concept of norm tables like this is like, honestly, it's, it's, I find it ridiculous and insulting. It is, uh, it's the kind of policy that governs most of the educational landscape, frankly. So it's not like LA is unique in any way on this, but it is the kind of policy that reflects a like total distrust of principals to manage their, their budgets. Um, and to be able to be like competent administrators of a, of a school site. And it works counter to, especially through an equity lens, it works totally counter this type of like rigid control of school budgets works totally counter to schools ability to actually maximize their resources in service of the needs of the, of the kids in the community. And of course you need, you know, with higher autonomy for the principal, you, you need probably greater accountability to say like, you can't just be out here spending willy nilly on stuff that's not producing results. But to just tie their hands behind their back and say, like, even if you have the funds in your budget, you can't hire an additional assistant principal because this arbitrary norm table that someone just made up says you shouldn't need one is like, what are we doing here, people? This is like, you can trust me to care for a thousand children every day and ensure their welfare and ensure they get fed and make sure their IEP mandates are met and make sure that, you know, all these hundred compliance items that we have to do as a school to make sure the school is safe and equitable and all these kinds of things. You could trust me to do that, but you can't trust me to make any decisions about how we should staff the school. It's insulting. It's just downright insulting. And it, and it's like, and it, it is a structural barrier to having schools that work well for our students, I would argue. Um, and so to see a sort of hardline return to that in this case, um, at least for right now in LA is troubling from my perspective. And I, I'm hoping we get a better, there's some negotiating and things that happens that gets us to like a better place that is considering the needs of different kinds of schools, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah. That's, a. Uh... Yeah, I'm definitely interested in hearing uh, what happens as as the discussions around this continue and, and go on. Obviously, not obviously, but for those who don't know, I don't teach in Los Angeles Unified School District, so I'm not quite sure, you know, what discussions might be in my district around staffing of assistant principals in general. I know when I first got to my school, it was reconstituted and it was certainly um, very much unequivocally a, a very high needs school. And when I first arrived, we had 
a principal and five assistant principals to help with the the restructuring of the entire school. And slowly but surely, we lost those positions. And now, even though our attendance, not attendance, our enrollment right now, as I speak, is back to the level that it was when I first arrived at the school during the reconstitution. So at that time, we had five assistant principals, and now we have two assistant principals, even though the number of students is pretty much the same. Granted, we're not going through reconstitution, which you know comes with all other sorts of requirements that definitely re- meant that we needed more assistant principals. But still, you can see the impact of having fewer assistant principals around, especially at schools like mine, where there are uh, so many uh, IEPs for students with special needs. We have so many, you know, other programs and other things that are, are are needed to be covered, and of course, sports, athletics, and needing administrators there, and and of course, the teaching and the actual like, how are teachers doing? What's their pedagogy looking like? How could we, you know, help support and improve the student experience and all that stuff? Like, man, it's hard to do with so few folks who are on site as administrators and able to 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 take the lead on those things. So difficult stuff, difficult stuff. So yeah, man, Jeff, keep us posted, man. Keep us updated. And again, if you're if you are an assistant principal in Los Angeles Unified, yo, my heart goes out to you. I definitely hope that things work out in a way that um, is best for you and, of course, for students, for sure. Um, Jeff, I am. I get it's election season, so I do live in the boundaries of Los Angeles Unified School District, and I've already received a pile of mailers from you know the two competing uh, folks who are running for the school board seat representing where I live, and yeah, it's a whole it's a whole stack of them already, Jeff. If only some of that money could be diverted to support students, because I can't imagine how much money is being spent on the election this time around. I think it broke records last time around. And for folks who aren't around here, those school board seats for Los Angeles Unified School Board um, School District, those are like highly coveted and highly, uh, I, I don't like a lot of funds, a lot of money from folks well outside of Los Angeles Unified School District um, pours in and. Where I live, it, it has tended to be a battle between a union-backed candidate who has a lens of, you know, more similar to what we express here on all of the above, which is one where it's not just about high stakes accountability and all that stuff, but it's also about just, you know, all the other things that, that schools need in order to... um best serve our students and and certainly help support our most marginalized students. And then on the other side of that is typically a candidate who has more of a school choice type of background, who is very much on the testing, testing, look at these test scores. It's a failing district. There's crime, there's fights. It's all falling apart. We need to get back to accountability and all of that. And it tends to be that the school choice folks pour money into that candidate and uh, union folks and, and, and those of us who serve in traditional public high schools for our careers and for our lives uh, tend to pull our support behind uh, that other candidate. So, so Jeff, I say that all to say, um, already a lot of money is being spent. If only some of that could be diverted to actually support students. But uh, I do have some very interesting mailers about how terrible uh, crime and and uh, achievement is in Los Angeles Unified. And the flyer says that this person who's running for the seat is a lifelong public school teacher. And you look at this person's record, uh, that whole lifelong of public school teaching has all been in charters and has all been along the lines of school choice and what many would say is paths towards privatization. So interesting stuff in any case. 
Damn, we're 20 minutes in, Je- in Jeff. We didn't even get to uh, today's stories. We should probably do that. We should probably do yeah, that. Yeah, man. So, um, oh, but first, but first, I'm sorry, folks. I'm sorry, folks, but I just feel like uh, we need to continue to um, express our concerns and our support for those continuing to endure all that is happening in Gaza. Of course, um, back in October, when when things first got really, really bad and... We were talking on the passing period about it. We were talking about what's the education lens on um, Palestine and Israel and, and the invasion of Gaza and all that's happening, the occupation of Gaza and all that. Um, and then we had, you know, some conversations around guest commentaries that were sent into us. And then we had, of course, a super dope guest, uh, Dr. Jabron, to, to help us further develop our lens of how this is impacting our, our Palestinian educators for sure and students, but um, also other um, other folks who, who are impacted by this more directly. And, you know, here we are in February, Jeff, and it's still going on. And that's just wild. And right now, all eyes on, on Rafa, which is one of the areas where folks in Gaza were told to relocate to, 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 to stay safe. One of those safe zones, um, that is now being prepared for a ground invasion. So again, I I don't know what more there is to say, Jeff, uh, particularly on our show, but it's the, I'm at a loss for words that we are here in February and we've been talking about, um, this and, and, and trying to gather our thoughts around this since October, and it does not seem to be coming to any sort of peaceful humanitarian conclusion anytime soon. So just want to put that that out there for those folks who do tune in and who are, um, especially those who are most impacted by the ongoing assault on people in Gaza. Um, We still with you. We are still um, very much, very much... um, wrapped around, you know, hearts and minds wrapped around um, the plight of the people of Gaza and and the West Bank, of course. So, yeah. Anything you want to say about that, Jeff, before yeah. we jump in? I mean, I just co-sign on that completely. It is, um, it's, th- there's times where I think about this, man, well, it's mind boggling that it's 2023 and we live in a world where... 2024. I'm sorry. Yes. 2024. Wow. Um, we live in a world where, um, our so-called representatives who don't really represent us are active supporters and active perpetuators of, uh, you know, of a genocide and uh, ethnic cleansing. And, um, you know, and of course right now, you know, what's happening in Palestine is dominating the head- headlines in many ways as it should. Of course, a lot of those headlines are you know, just sort of anti-Palestinian propaganda, but um, nonetheless, dominating the headlines. And we have other, you know, we have what's happening in Congo, what's happening in Sudan, um, you know, and uh, it's, it is, it's difficult to sort of sit back and see what is happening and watch the, at least the American dominant media coverage of it be so skewed and so, you know, um, just white supremacist and colonial in its lens and, um, and to just sort of watch history repeating itself all over again. You know, it's not Cecil Rhodes and the diamond mines. It's, you know, Apple and Tesla and Google and, you know, whatever Chinese state companies 
are taking all the minerals out of, you know, Congo. And it's a good old fashioned American oil, you know, petrochemical driven imperialism in the, the region of the, the Middle East, um, you know, using Israel as a proxy colonial state. Um, and that, that goes for Western European powers as well. So it's, it's like re rewriting the world history textbook just with new stuff, you know? Um, and it's, it's hard to watch that and realize how little we have, uh, you know, how little we, I shouldn't even say we, how little they have learned, um, from the past yeah. uh, to, to commit these atrocities so openly and brazenly. Yeah. Uh, I guess to be continued, you know, this conversation, I, I wish, I wish this conversation could come to a, a, a peaceful close, but it appears to not be possible, uh, especially with the right wing government of Israel insisting on um, seeing this out to its full and final conclusion, which seems to apparently just be um, the absolute decimation of all of Gaza and the Palestinian people who are trapped there right now. So and 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 the complete you know and the complete colonization of the west bank it's the erasure of palestine entirely and and frankly the elimination of yeah. most if not all the palestinian people you know and that is uh the historical irony i don't even know if that's the right word here the the final solutionness of this is in it's like it's bananas it's 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 so outrageous it's hard to find words it is it is hard to find words and i'm still being told by my local congressman to to fear the republicans out here fear the right wing and at the same time he's fully supporting sending more money to the right wing in israel it's just like so we're good with sending money to that right wing but i got i'm you know supposed to be so fearful of this right wing which i am to you know which i am but it's just like just picking and choosing man the hypocrisy of it all yeah. but we but we can't have ap's at elementary schools and watch right. though so but we got missiles for plenty israel. of them. got Got it. Understood. This is this is where I just I'm hearing Tupac uh, resonating in my mind, man. Well, they got money for war, but can't man. feed the poor like over and over and over again. Hey, timeless, timeless, you know. So. All right, folks. Uh, sorry, but hard pivot, hard pivot. There's no there is no transition from that to um, today's first story. And, you know, I'm just going to name that and call that out. Uh, now, we are here at all of the above. Uh Typically, you know, just just unbiased, you know what I'm saying? Just objective in our discussions around things. But um, Jeff here, Mr. Super Duper Dope Principal Leader Man, um, you know, he insisted. He really insisted. I was like, no, Jeff, there's so many other things to talk about. But Jeff wanted to do a double dose, a double dose of Dartmouth today and have two stories related to his alma mater, Dartmouth. And I was like, Jeff, the people, you know, the people want objective, you know, uh, education analysis. And, you know, I feel like your your personal uh, history is 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 highly influencing your decision making here. And he was like, I don't care. Are we doing it? And, you know, he's the administrator, right? So that's what, as a classroom teacher, that's what you got to do, right? The administrator, yo, he, their way or the highway, right? So here we are talking about Dartmouth. Jeff, what's our first story related to your alma mater? Well, Manuel, first of all, I got to say a uh, shout out to the College on the Hill. As we record this, right above my computer screen is my Dartmouth uh, diploma, okay, uh, which is, which is, 
without a doubt, the most expensive piece of paper I have ever purchased uh, in, <laughs> in my life. And it's not close. Um, you know, the, I suppose I do have a, a, a title to my home, but the difference is I can live in that title and I <laughs> could not live inside the diploma. Um, but uh, shout out to Dartmouth College, Hanover, New Hampshire, the college on the hill. Uh, and... We got these two stories from Dartmouth, uh, which are, are both fascinating, uh, Manuel, that this, you know, small elite institution would uh, be sort of the, the center of gravity around education news in many ways uh, this week uh, is interesting. So um, here we go. We're going to jump into the first one, Manuel. And this actually comes to us via ESPN. Okay. Shout out to the worldwide leader in sports. Okay. Um, but actually ESPN cited this article from, from the Associated Press. So, you know, that's how it goes today. But the article is titled, uh, Labor Board Regional Official Clears Way for Dartmouth Hoops Union. Yes. You heard that right, folks. So. Uh, February 5th, uh, just this past week, a National Labor Relations Board regional official ruled that Dartmouth's men's basketball players are, in fact, employees of the school, clearing the way for an election that would create the first labor union for NCAA athletes. Um, now, this is fascinating, Manuel, because a couple years back, folks might remember that there were members of the Northwestern football team, Northwestern University uh, outside of Chicago, their football team that attempted to unionize and um, and and I believe sued in court and lost. Um, but now, since then, we've seen the explosion of NIL, name, image, and likeness, um, in uh, the world of college sports, which for anyone who's not a sports fan, means that uh, college um, athletes can now profit from the use of their name, image, and likeness and um, have the ability to uh, to essentially make money off of themselves as athletes. So you see now college athletes, the real big name ones in commercials on TV or getting, you know, different marketing deals and that kind of thing. They are not technically paid by the university per se, but there are these like cooperatives of boosters and stuff who literally will just pay students for coming to the school. Right. And now all the universities and the coaches are up in arms and they're talking about it's chaos and all this. But actually, this is, you know, this is like Walmart and, you know, and Best Buy saying it's chaos because there's a $15 minimum wage. You know, like it's it is classic capitalist tyrant, uh, <laughs> you know, temper tantrum kind of stuff. Um, all, all, all be it to say, like, there is probably some regulation that needs to come into the space to make it work well. Um, but this would really be the first sort of official legal step, Manuel, of uh, college athletes being ruled as employees and therefore being able to unionize. They are set to have a vote uh, next month in March um, to officially try to become a union. Um, and uh, that is is going to be really fascinating. Now, of course, the the uh, the college and potentially other entities could appeal this decision. So we'll see what comes of that um, and where this sort of makes its way up the various chains of authority. Um, 
But uh, here, here's just a little excerpt um, that NLRB Regional Director Laura Sachs wrote about the case. She wrote, quote, because Dartmouth has the right to control the work performed by the men's basketball team and the players perform that work in exchange for compensation, I find that the petition for basketball players are employees within the meaning of the National Labor Relations Act. Um, so... Manuel, I love this. I don't know that I've ever said this on this show, but I hate the NCAA with a deep spiritual passion. Okay. Uh, mm. I think it's a, it is a cartel of rich, you know, people and, and, uh, you know, and an agent of these incredibly wealthy universities that literally profits off the backs of student athletes and gives them virtually nothing in exchange and then spends its time investigating athletes for taking pocket change on the side to buy pizza or other kinds of things. Right. And when I think back, man, well, I was not a, a college athlete you were going to see on TV unless you lived in New England, um, right? But I wasn't like, you know, big time playing in the Rose Bowl and that kind of stuff. But I played football at Dartmouth. And I remember playing myself on on EA Sports NCAA football like 2000 or 2001 or whatever. Like you could play as Dartmouth and I could play me, number 50, yeah. in that video game, right? And I remember the moment where I was like, you know, I'm not Chris Webber or Ed O'Bannon or whatever, but I was like, some don't seem exactly right about this. Like it's right, cool, right. but also like, how are they going to have number 50 who has all of my stats? Uh, you know, <laughs> but like, yeah. I don't get, you know, a couple hundred bucks off of this or something, you know? Um, so I love it. I hope the players are successful. I hope this becomes what it should become, which is these athletes are in fact paid employees of the university and are deserve compensation, deserve rights and protections, deserve benefits and health care and all the other kinds of stuff that employees get when they give 40 plus hours a week to work at an institution for the betterment of that institution. When the reality is almost all these folks are not going to become professional athletes. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot there, Jeff. Uh, honestly, so... This was really big news in the sports world for, you know, I understand many of our listeners don't really follow or watch ESPN or anything like that. But this was really big news. And through my lens as just an educator, of course, I, I, I see all the billions and billions that are being generated by uh, collegiate athletics. And yes, I know that that athletes can finally have their own. Um, deals for their name, image, and likeness. And I know that some of the, the bigger name, uh, college athletes are bringing in a lot of money and those who play something besides basketball or football and perhaps don't have as big of a name, um, aren't able to cash in as much, um, on that. But it's important to emphasize for anybody who has seen like, oh, wait, but I thought, I thought these uh, athletes could get paid now. I saw a, a post about the quarterback for, was it Alabama? one of the SEC schools and how he just bought a Lamborghini, like they're getting money. Um, that's not the school's money that they're getting. They're, they're allowed to get side money. So like that was the first momentous uh, shift was just simply allowing these college students to get side money, which should have never been 
a question in the first place. Like, why can't I have some money on the side? Um, but now it's it's about making sure that that the the billions that are being generated by the by the schools by the programs that these athletes who are out there putting their bodies on the line for it have access to some of that revenue um, and have more importantly access to the protections that come with being an actual employee. So, you know, my concern, Jeff, because I haven't dug deep into the analysis around this is if I am somebody who's more on the less humanizing side of like looking at education and looking at things, you know, I might see something like this and be like, all right, fine. If they're employees, then they shouldn't be, they shouldn't get, I, I don't know, they, then they're not students. And if they're not students, then why are we giving them degrees or diplomas or, or whatever, whatever. I don't know if anyone's saying that yet, Jeff, but I am curious if any of those folks, especially on the, the far right who think, you know, everything's just, you know, it's just all the things. I wonder if they see this as like, all right, so you're an employee now. You could be fired. You could be, you know, this and that, whatever. And by the way, we're not going to call you students anymore. You're not a student. You're only there to work. So get to work. You know what I'm saying? Like that type of more dehumanizing um, view of it. I wonder if any of that has popped up yet in the analysis or discussion, because I, if not, I, I can only imagine it's coming. I can only imagine folks, you know, uh, slandering student athletes, and of course, that that's the term that's under, you know, question here, uh, slandering those folks as just employees and not actual students anymore in the general conversation of it all. So I'm curious about that, Jeff. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you've seen any of that discussion start to to pop up yet. Well, I haven't. I'm not worried about it at all, because the reality is people who think like that already don't value the the academic experience True. of the students they that's that's one of those things that they only use when they're trying to bludgeon students into not advocating for a profit sharing model yep. right um and so i think what what is underneath this to me manuel is like there is so the article talks about this sort of like you know legal intellectual question of like well um you know if the if Dartmouth's men's basketball players are employees, um, uh, not only what athletes are not employees, but does this make the music students employees? And this was said, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm losing the name of this person. Gabe Feldman, a sports law professor at Tulane, said this. Does this open the door too far, right? That's that's a perfectly fine legal question to ask. And at some point, it probably will need to be answered, right? Like, is the kid who's, you know... And, you know, uh, doing some elite uh, engineering work or whatever, like, and bringing in revenue or something like maybe there is a question to be answered there. And maybe that student should be compensated for their work. Um, but the reality is, honestly, many of those folks, right, like already could be compensated for their work. Like if you're an engineering student at the college and you go on Shark Tank and you sell some great product, they don't consider you a criminal and then suspend you from school because you made money off of your work, right? Like it's already legal to do that, right? So that's that's a problem that isn't actually a problem right now. Um, and there's no history that I'm aware of, of colleges ruthlessly exploiting the labor of uh, of students in that sense. Now you can argue that like TAs and stuff should be better paid than they are. So in that sense, maybe there, there is a history of it, but we're not talking about a literally unpaid workforce that then therefore actually generates 
in many cases, millions of dollars, if not tens or hundreds of millions of dollars that go into the coffers of the university and zero of which goes into the pockets of the athletes. And so, and not coincidentally, the major revenue sports are football, our men's basketball, our women's basketball, right? Um, and of course, we know that at not, you know, that's not the case at every school, but the overwhelming majority of college sports revenue comes from those sports. And, um, and I should say a growing slice of that revenue is coming from women's basketball, especially in this age of like the Caitlin Clarks and the, you know, Angel Reese's and just, you know, it's, it's a, yeah. it's a rapidly growing, uh, sport in terms of fan exposure and therefore dollars. And so, you know, we are, uh, I think we're getting clarity or an increasing level of clarity about the amount of money you hear. So Chip Kelly, your boy, former head coach of UCLA Don't football. Don't ever call him okay? my boy, Jeff. Um, not my boy. Not my boy. Is now the offensive coordinator at the Ohio State University. And I heard on the radio this morning that he is taking a $4 million a year pay cut. Okay. To take that job. Now, Chip Kelly, I have to say, as someone who played against him in college when he was an offensive coordinator, is a beast of an offensive coordinator. I think he's probably going to do a great job. That said, how many of us out here, Manuel, can take a $4 million a year pay cut and still be bringing home $2 million a year? Okay. So this dude was the head coach at UCLA, not exactly the highest revenue generating football program in the country. And he's making $6 million a year as a head coach. The hundred or so players on his roster making $0 a year from the university, right? Um, and that's UCLA, right? Think about Mississippi, Texas, Florida State, Michigan, Ohio State, all these other major flagship university programs, man. The temples that are built as stadiums for these schools, the locker rooms, the, you know, the, the jets that people get to fly on, the, you know, booster donations to the university, the free national advertising for these schools that raises their profile and helps them grow in the U.S. News and World Reports rankings. All this kind of stuff is value that these athletes are adding to the school. And it is absolutely time that the NCAA is crumpled up and thrown into the trash can as an organization and that the um, athletes profit from their labor. Yeah, I agree with that. You mentioned um, Angel Reese and um, Caitlin Clark and, and thinking about how much money was generated from that championship game last spring that was just like took the whole you know just captured all of our our attention and to think that neither one of them or anyone on their team got like even a slice of that like they had the finally after decades they had the opportunity to at least cash in on the side if they could but to get nothing from all those commercials all those ads all the discussion that came the week after to get zero from that is mind-blowing like where where else does that happen and these, these are you know young people who are in our classes young people who are trying to get their college education while also um continuing to pursue sports and to you know just contribute in all the ways to their university like yeah no um, i mean you're right jeff uh, i i would add or i would say that at this point i don't know how much of it even is the ncaa although of course they're the ones challenging this in court and all that um, even if we obliterated the NCAA and it ceased to exist, I, I think the universities, I think the conferences, I think all those folks uh, 
who are getting all the revenue, who are getting all the profits, I, I think they themselves would be the ones to step up to try to fight this for one reason or another, for all the, you know, lame excuses and, and narratives that get painted about like, oh, well, you know, they're getting a free education and, you know, education, this and that, whatever. Um, so, you know, uh, as much as I agree with you that the NCAA is um, has no place here anymore, like there is no no legitimate pursuit of anything that they do that I think is in the realm of justice or or fairness or or humanization of our young people who who compete i think that the the opposition to this is going to be robust regardless of the ncaa's role but you know we shall see oh yeah oh yeah the big 10 and the sec are out there scheming right for now sure, for um, sure under the guise of like we have to protect our student athletes and folks if you want to hear a little bit more about yeah. the concept the legal fiction that is the term student athlete that was invented to protect these universities from exactly the kind of scrutiny they're getting right now because they've known that this has been a racket from the beginning you should uh, dig through the crates and find our episode with dave zyron um who who is the uh, sports reporter yeah. or sports editor, I think, for for The Nation magazine. He's uh, fantastic, has a great podcast, Edge of Sports. Shout out to Dave Zirin. Um, and go back and check out that episode because he dropped some serious knowledge on this concept of, of student athletes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, well, I think that the only solution here that I can really see is is unionization um, for the athletes. Uh, like in all other contexts where you have like this massively profited, profitable um, entity that is effectively a monopoly um, in the form of, you know, the NCAA itself or in the form of these massive college conferences that collude like, you know, sort of co-monopolies now, the Big Ten and the SEC especially, um, as really the big dogs, you know, they're, they're the... The McDonald's and the Burger King yeah. or whatever of college sports, you need a union. You know what I mean? And <laughs> like that is that's the only option here where where the players who currently have nothing are going to be able to to have power in order to wrestle away um, a fair share here. Um, and we see that in every other aspect of the economy, right? Like it's, it's only super well to do people, you know? Um, and even sometimes in their case, like pro athletes still need a union, right? But like, you know, it's only like Hollywood actors and these kind of people who all, who themselves have million dollar attorneys that can like come out of wrestling with big corporations and like sort of be okay. The rest of us need a union, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the deal. Straight up, straight up. So, uh, as Jeff said, folks, go back to that was episode 71 uh, with Dave Zirin, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, but also um, all the other things. Uh, fantastic, fantastic author. Um, episode 71. And and if you're like, yo, I want even more, then dig back a little further. Episode 63, we had uh, Dr. Eddie Como, who was speaking about the movement for social justice through the lens of college sports and athletics or college athletics. And, um, you know, actually, uh, Dr. Eddie Como, actually, actually, first, first, you know, we mentioned that quite a bit. Dig through the crates. Like I'm digging through all these old episodes to find like, oh, what episode was so-and-so on? What episode was so-and-so on? And then I'm seeing all these other episodes next to him. Like, oh, yeah, we had that great conversation uh, with so-and-so. And then we had this other one. Um, and then I realized, you know, I don't know if everybody knows what digging through the crates even means because that's, you know, a hip hop term. Hip hop term for when DJs would dig through crates and crates of records trying to find the most um, rare, unique 
pieces to to sample to you know get an edge on on their other uh, on their competition in music so digging through the crates means digging through like old I shouldn't even use the label old because these episodes are timeless. These conversations with our guests, <laughs> our super dope guests, are timeless. But, uh, you know, digging through the past uh, past content that AOTA has uh, provided and, you know, so many great conversations there for those of you who are more recent to us. We've been doing this for years and we've had so many wonderful, wonderful guests. But the episode with uh, Dr. Eddie Como, um, Advancing Justice in College Sports, that's episode 63. And Jeff, I spotted his name. I spotted Dr. Como's name in this next story also about your alma mater and i'm like a double dose of dartmouth which you know i don't know how this got approved um but in any case um his name popped up in this next story jeff we're gonna talk about this next story i don't know if you noticed his name i i i kind of doubt you did it was only in my head because i was trying to yeah okay okay it'll pop up it'll pop up Um, his name was in my head because i was like looking for the old episode and then when i was reading through the materials for this next story i was like there can't be that many Comos, right? Like, that's a pretty unique name in yeah. the realm of higher education. So I looked into it and like, boom, this same guy, same guy. So what's this next story, Jeff, about your alma mater? All right. So, Manuel, next story is um, also from dear old Dartmouth, the college on the hill. Shout out to the Big Green. Uh, but maybe not shout out to the Big Green. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the the president and dean of the college released this report, I guess you could call it, along with several faculty members. Um, it's actually dated January 30th, so a little, little more than a week ago now. Um, but an email went out to all the alumni this week, which is how I um, actually heard about it. And it is entitled The Report from Working Group on the Role of Standardized Test Scores in Undergraduate Admissions. Interesting. So Dartmouth, like many, the like the majority of uh, institutions around the country during the height of the pandemic, went to a test optional admissions system. Now, that was also coinciding with the fact that there were already a set of universities that were moving away from requiring the SAT for admissions. And then the pandemic, because of just the you know inability to run testing centers and the, the crappiness of online testing and all these other kinds of things, um, it became you know, sort of a like, all right, we're all going to do this now, or most of us are going to do this now and just sort of try to level the playing field, so to speak. So Dartmouth has since assessed that policy and come to the determination that they should reinstate the requirement for the SAT um, in at the college. Now, you might say like, Okay, that's interesting in and of itself. I think what's most interesting about this is that they, the rationale that they're giving for this decision is, is, um, grounded in the idea that reinstituting the testing requirement for undergraduate admissions will actually help the college better recognize students from marginalized, um, or underserved, underrepresented backgrounds for admission, right? So here we have spent and we have a, you know, decades long body of research that suggests the standardized testing actually functions as a, I mean, certainly it has a white supremacist historical origin. That's just kind of a fact, but also that even in its more evolved current state, it has, um, a, you know, sort of disproportionate, uh, outcome in terms of its effect on low-income students, black and brown students, first-generation, uh, you know, immigrant students, etc. 
So uh, this is this is fascinating, Manuel. Um, the, the report states, our overall conclusion is that the use of SAT and ACT scores is an essential method by which admissions can identify applicants who will succeed at Dartmouth. Importantly, these test scores better position admissions to identify high-achieving, less-advantaged applicants and high-achieving applicants who attend high schools for which Dartmouth has less information to interpret the transcripts. Okay. Um, I have to say when I saw this first, I was like, I'm calling BS. This is just like smokescreen and they just want to, you know, the, like whatever the faculty were probably up in arms about, about something and they want the test, you know, SAT back so that they're, you know, they feel better about it or whatever. I, I thought this was like nefarious, trying to wrap itself in like liberally language. And it very well still could be that. Let's be real. But I do find it interesting what they have cited in this report. So they have key findings, which include the following. One, the SAT and ACT scores are highly predictive of academic achievement at Dartmouth. Okay. So high correlation between academic success at the school and test scores. Second, SAT is a strong predictor of academic success at Dartmouth for all subgroups. Okay, so not just, you know, rich uh, legacy white kids, right? Um, uh, and this is in terms of academic success, predicting GPA. Third, a test optional policy is likely a barrier to identify to Dartmouth identifying less advantaged students who would succeed at Dartmouth. So basically, students who had high enough scores, but come from marginalized backgrounds that could be admitted are choosing not to submit their scores and actually inadvertently reducing the likelihood that they will be accepted because without the test scores, the admissions office has to account, has to take into consideration factors that more kids from marginalized backgrounds are less competitive with, like glowing recommendations from your guidance counselor or really robust resumes with, you know, travel around the world and all these like cool internships and stuff. If you're a, you know, a poor kid who has to like babysit your siblings after school and maybe work a job at, you know, at on the weekends and you don't and that and then go to school and that's all you have on your resume, you know, it can it can inadvertently hurt you if uh, if testing is removed from the equation. OK. Um, and uh, then lastly, test optional policies do not necessarily increase the proportion of less advantaged students in the applicant pool. So even even just the idea that the test is optional doesn't actually lead, they're saying, to more. Uh, you know, marginalized students applying in the first place. Now, my big thought about this, Manuel, is, okay, let's assume all these points are true and they've done their research well. I wonder to what extent this is a reflection of the fact that Dartmouth is such an elite institution. It's dealing with such a thin slice of the student population that maybe within that thin slice, these statements may be true, even though the opposite is potentially uh, very likely true for the student population at large. That is my thesis here. I would need to do more digging and, you know, <laughs> 
quantitative analysis to uh, to prove that thesis. But that's that's my hunch about what may be playing out here, Manuel, with an asterisk that says also this could be some liberally nonsense that is trying to paint a like social justice face on just a problematic policy. But that's my take, Manuel, as someone who loves the SAT as much as I know you do. What is your take, sir? Oh, I am a card-carrying member of the College Board. I just love the SAT um, and all matters related to related to that billion-dollar industry. Um, yeah, so at first, my first thought was, of course, um, but like it's happened so fast. You know, it happened so fast. I, I think we all, I, those of us in education, we hear quite a bit about how things change in education so rapidly, like nothing, no like quote unquote reform or new effort or new programming um, is kept around long enough to see if it like really works. Like, you know, everything's, you know, you know, a school year or two, like, oh, that didn't really work. We're trying something different. And this is one where like going test optional and for those schools that have abandoned the test over all, you know, altogether, like that happened really quickly. Jeff, when we started the show, like no schools that, that I could recall, um, were talking about getting rid of the SAT or going test optional back then. And I know our, our show's been on for a minute, but it hasn't been on that long. So we went from, you know, just regular traditional testing everywhere, uh, SAT. And I think we had early stories on the show about, you know, different things the college board was doing to try to like come up with like a score of, of how, challenged uh, a student's neighborhood or, or school district were um, as a way to like kind of balance out the inequities that come out of SATs. Um, we went from that. So just, you know, testing is here to stay and we're going to tinker around with it to like, oh, never mind. Let's not do testing at all. Or let's do test optional to now like, oh, yeah, we tried that. And we're going back to the SAT and the ACT. Like all that all happened so quickly that I'm concerned or I'm curious about Dartmouth's findings and the extent to which they discussed like further investigating this before making that that really big decision to like go back to requiring testing because it, it seemed to have happened so quick. I don't know with in the midst of the pandemic and all the other things that are impacting education right now. I don't know that one or two years of data is like enough to to really uh, confirm their conclusions here that they need the SAT to help them identify struggling students who are not struggling students, students from uh, more disadvantaged backgrounds who would do well in Dartmouth. It just seems like they were really quick to jump to that. So that leads me to believe that the faculty and the folks involved in this, like, probably didn't want to go test optional in the first place, you know, and now it's like, okay, fine. We like, we finally have some data. Look at this, look at this, but it's so brand new. And to your point, like it's such a small sliver, probably, um, you know, it's such a selective college and, and the Ivy leagues are so selective. Like, you know, how many students are we really talking? Like, are this is a lot of this data just based on outliers and what have you. So, so there's that. And it, it really makes me think like, the 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 fact that they're saying that they need this inequitable testing like there's decades of research that shows the the inequities that come from um that we see in SAT scores and and you know ties to income and times to ties to family background and race and all these things it's almost like they're saying like but but we need these barriers in place to see which which marginalized students are strong enough to jump over these barriers and get in like they they're calling for these these inequitable barriers that have been so criticized and so much research showing the inequities within it. And they're here saying like, but we need that to be able to better identify the marginalized students who who can make it in. So it's like, 
it just it's uh, I don't know it's it's you know I I don't doubt the the statistical analysis that they conducted and any of that it just seems like it happened so fast and it seemed like they're really calling for like you know we kind of need barriers how else do we know who's strong enough and that's just really really uh, unfortunate and all of this you know all this discussion around college success and preparedness so much of it is just like just constructs that we put up you know so even just the idea of like success in college and like the SAT correlates with success I'm thinking well what other things correlate with success in college like I'm sure professors ability to engage their students effectively correlates with student success but of course we don't really ever talk about the actual pedagogy happening in higher education of course like you know other things correlate to student success besides the SAT yet like here we are focusing on that piece and it's all just so so made up there's so many other things we could focus on that that correlate to success and you know i'm obviously i also think about legacy students and their role in all this and what their test scores show and how that correlates to their success and you know to what extent exceptions are made for for those folks and the connection between this story and the previous story besides of course being dartmouth is that um this report that they pointed to that Dartmouth put together, um, you know, they have a piece in there that cites something published by uh, Dr. Eddie Como, who we just mentioned was uh, a guest on our show talking about um, justice in, in or the fight for justice in college athletics. But um, there's, there's a line in the report that says that SAT and ACT scores are highly predictive of academic performance at Dartmouth. This is consistent with previous research and they cite uh, Como and Sanchez 2020. And that's why I was like, is that the same Como? Cause you know, we were talking to him about, you know, justice in sports and stuff. I didn't really take him to be somebody who's like a, proponent of the SAT. I didn't take him to be somebody who's going to be out here saying like we need the SAT because it, it's predictive of academic performance. So I went and looked that up and and what they actually cited was a report of the UC University of California Academic Council standardized testing task force. So Dr. Como was co-chair of that task force. So back when the University of California system uh, investigated their decision to no longer require the SAT or the ACT for admissions. They put this task force together to, you know, basically dive deep into that decision and what comes next. And it was co-chaired by Henry Sanchez and Eddie Como. And it's funny because the recommendations like this is like a 200 page report. And I just now looked at it when I was like, Como, Como, that's an interesting name. So I did not, you know, full disclosure, I did not read through the 227 pages of this report, but they do list their recommendations for the UC system as it relates to their decision to not continue the SAT. And those recommendations, none of them say go back to the SAT. Uh, I don't see anything in here that's saying, that's arguing for, um, test for requiring standardized tests for admissions, but their recommendations include, um, updating the eligibility for students for a UC system, updating those components, expanding eligibility for students to apply to the University of California system, further analyzing, further, another recommendation to is to further analyze factors contributing to disproportionate representation and to study and expand student academic support services and obtain data to perform item level analysis of current standardized tests. So to dig deeper into the I assume without reading that full section, uh, to me, obtaining data to perform item level analysis of current standardized tests means to dig deeper into the the, the nitty gritty of the SAT and the ACT and other standardized tests to see um, 
where some of these inequities are popping up and whether or not those bits have much to do with college success. And their uh, final recommendation is to develop a new assessment that will be continuously accessible to students and that will assess a broader array of student learning and capabilities than any of the currently available tests. So to me, that's not what Dartmouth is doing. Dartmouth is actually saying like, no, let's just go back to the test that we've had forever, which is the uh, SAT or the ACT. And the report, one of the reports that they cited to boost this, uh, the claim that the SAT is uh, strongly correlated with academic success of students at Dartmouth is this report that has a final conclusion of actually developing something better than the SAT that could assess a broader array, array of student learning and capability. So I don't know, man, I just, you know, it's like talking in circles around, you know, the benefits and the cons of the SAT. And, and I think this is a robust conversation to continue because I think it does matter. There's a difference between the SAT and its use at, at Dartmouth than there would be for its use at, you know, for a student I don't know, applying to UC Riverside or Merced or something, maybe, or, or UCLA. I don't know. Um, but there's more, more to discuss. And Dartmouth seemed to so quickly, so quickly say, yeah, we're just going to go back to the SAT. Oh, why? Uh, uh, black and brown kids, man, they actually, actually, they need it. Actually, this is good for them and all good for us. So yeah, that's, that's what we're doing here. So that's my initial, initial response. But again, full transparency, I am teaching day-to-day -day ethnic studies and doing a whole lot of other things. So I did not read this 200 page report from the UC systems, uh, report of the, uh, standardized testing task force, nor did I dive deep into the statistical analysis presented by Dartmouth, um, which they used to conclude that they need the SAT to help um, them identify students from less advantaged backgrounds who would do well at their university. But it's just, uh, it doesn't sit right with me, Jeff. It does not yeah, sit right it, with me. Yeah. It's, I mean, clearly they, they, I don't want to say cherry picked, but they, they pulled out a point they were trying to make from Eddie Como's. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, report, they, right. Yeah, which yeah. is that like their, their argument, which apparently he and his colleagues, uh, substantiated was that, Test scores are more correlated with GPA success at higher ed than GPA success in high school. Right. Um, so that's interesting. I there there is a histogram in this report, and we'll put the link in the in the notes below so folks can check it out themselves. They have this histograms of composite SAT scores, which overlaps the classes of 2017 and 2018 which was the test required era and the classes of 2021 and 2022, which was the test optional era. And they essentially what it shows is that a higher percentage of the class in the test optional era was kids who scored at the higher, at the highest ends, like more kids scored higher on the test in the test optional era, a greater percentage of the class than in the test required era. And given that we know that hot, that uh, performance on the SAT and ACT is highly correlated with race also, right? That like there's more students of color in like the 1400 or 1300 range on and more low income students and first generation college students, et cetera, than there is in the 1500 and 1600 range of the SAT. And so perhaps counterintuitively making the test optional actually resulted in fewer of the of the students from marginalized backgrounds being in the class 
than you you would have potentially expected, right? So again, I have some you know questions about this and like the 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 actual genesis for this was this like faculty members being like these kids aren't ready and we need to bring back the test. Sorry to make them sound like whiny. They probably sounded just like that people. <laughs> that, was, that was probably pretty accurate. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that based on any experience, but, um, you know, I don't know if it's coming from that place or if it's coming from like, you know, the, the faculty coalition that's trying to increase student diversity was like, Hey, we're seeing a dip in diversity and what's the cause of that dip and how do we address it? You know? So I'd be curious to learn more, but this is fascinating stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly fascinating. And I believe it will be an ongoing conversation because if Dartmouth did it, I imagine other schools are considering it. I, I would think other um, select, highly selective schools. And the more those start doing that, then the more schools and districts start to focus on bringing back their, their, um, prior focus on the SAT and the ACT and, you know, it kind of just gets things rolling. So we'll see what direction this goes. And, you know, as always, folks, chime in, let us know your thoughts, uh, especially if, especially for those of you who have unique perspective or connection to, to either of these stories about the, um, you know, athletes, the NCAA athletes, and uh, in this case, test optional or test required and what have you. That's that's been a double dose of Dartmouth, folks. Um, Jeff, what what city is Dartmouth in, and what is the mascot? Isn't it like the Friars or something, or am I tripping? No, you're definitely tripping. It is located <laughs> in Hanover, New Hampshire, which okay. probably no one knows anything about. It's a small town about three hours north of Boston, northwest of Boston, right on the border of Vermont. It is a stunningly beautiful part of America, especially in the fall. It's right on the banks of the Connecticut River. And it's sort of, if you think of it as being like kind of halfway between Boston and Montreal, that's that's maybe a helpful set of big cities mm. to think about. Okay. Okay. What's the mascot? Yeah. Oh, the mascot is the big green, which uh, is effectively not actually a mascot. Um, but there is a sort of unofficial moose <laughs> that is a mascot. We also are, there's like a lone pine, uh, like pine tree. That's kind of a mascot as well. And then the racist people at Dartmouth hold on to the original mascot of the school, which was an Indian. And it's just as racist as it sounds. It's very like Washington, mm. previous Washington football name, name type of type of type of vibes. And the Dartmouth Review, the notorious conservative student newspaper um, that, you know, g generates a lot of the nutty right wing people we hear on Fox News and other kinds of places. Um you know, those folks still love the Indian and they make T-shirts with Indian of logos and canes with Indian logos and stuff like that. Um, yeah, they just, you know, you can't you can't get the white supremacist out of the white supremacist, man. Well, um, so uh, so, yeah, Dartmouth actually was uh, this is the great, crazy irony of it all, Manuel. So originally Dartmouth was founded to, like, educate the Indians and then did some colonizer stuff on that front for a while and then had no Native American students and no women and no people of color for like 300 years. And then in the 1970s, um, 
uh, became co-ed and decided to recommit itself to its, you know, quote unquote, original mission around educating Native American students and now has a very robust Native American studies program, one of the largest uh, Native, you know, student enrollments in the Ivy League and is, you know, um, is doing some good stuff on that front. Um, and thankfully got rid of that logo, uh, except these, you know, nutty right wingers who don't want to let it go and they can't you know it's like it's like their version of confederate their heritage yeah it's their heritage exactly it's all they're doing exactly and of course they're doing it they're doing it to honor them that's the important thing you have to understand Mel of Wolf. course well obviously jeff of course it's it's all about yeah. respect <laughs> okay um, okay, yeah. okay thank you for that 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 lesson about dartmouth and its history and location and and mascot and all that uh apologies to Providence, they're the Friars. I'm much, yeah. I yeah, I hear about yeah. them a lot more because college basketball in in you know um, Big East and all that. So apologies to you, Providence folk. I'm just a California boy whose uh, New England geography and Midwest geography is just a uh, really muddled, really muddled. But anyways, I think that's about it for this week, folks. Uh, we very much appreciate y'all chiming in um and rating us and reviewing us and doing all the things to help us appear in more educators feeds uh we can now see in our little analytics thing um at least for spotify not not for apple Podcasts, which is where the the vast majority of listeners engage with all of the above but um because our hosting platform is through spotify uh, we get those numbers and analytics um pretty directly and we can see that we've been popping up in on the home pages of some folks and popping up in some of the the search results for folks um i could only assume educator type of folks so your engagement with us is is working to some degree so please if you haven't already or even if you have uh done a review or a thumbs up or whatever your your um listening or viewing platform allows you to do even if you've done that already but like a while back maybe it's been a minute um re-up re-up on that like go back and uh, do it again if you can folks because uh that'll go a long way to helping us out it's just just it is just jeff and myself and neither one of us are super active on social media these days so we could use your help and support in uh boosting our show and and helping folks see and explore and um you know be part of these conversations that we have here on all of the above and as always you know our website, aotashow.com. All the prior episodes, all the prior full episodes are up there. You can see all the, the many dozens and dozens and dozens of super dope guests that we have had on the show and, and dig through those crates and, and, you know, tap into some of those conversations from earlier this year or, or five years ago. Either way, those conversations are evergreen as we continue to fight for a more just and humanizing school system and experience for for all. Jeff, anything else before we dip up out of here? That's it, man. It's been a great uh, it's been a great episode. Always love chopping it up with you, Manuel. Shout out to all of our listeners and supporters here in America and around the world. Um, we love you all. Appreciate the support. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. All right, folks. Man, I hope my Niners won. By the time you're listening to this, I hope I hope my Niners are Super Bowl champions. I could really use that. I could really use that boost. But even if not, it's all good. Remember, we love y'all. And now it's time for y'all to go ahead and get to class. <laughs>